Hey, Rob Bradford here. You guys know I'm always up for a good MVP story, and one of the best stories is Wasabi Technology. Wasabi is the world's hottest cloud storage company, and it's become the go-to provider for professional and collegiate sports teams, including 20 major league baseball teams like the Red Sox and NHL teams like the Bruins and Vancouver Canucks. Even the Liverpool Football Club is getting in on the Wasabi action. So why is Wasabi the MVP? Well, Wasabi was purpose-built to free businesses from skyrocketing storage costs and unpredictable transaction fees that the Amazons of the world are charging. In fact, Wasabi is up to 80% less than those hyperscalers and doesn't charge a cent for businesses to access their data. From Wasabi's AI-enabled intelligent media storage, Wasabi Air, to the industry's only cloud storage service with triple protection against cyber criminals, data deletion, and ransomware, Wasabi's taking the lead in driving innovation in data storage and helping sports teams to unleash the power of their data. Wasabi, another Boston-based champion championship team here in the seventh inning the Yankees are trailing two nothing that is the key man hit high in the air to left field going to the corner Yastrzemski it's over the wall it's a home run for Bucky Dent Yankees get the lead three two Deep to left, Yastrzemski will not get it, it's a home run! A three-run home run for Bucky Dent, the Yankees now lead it by a score of three to two. Well, the last guy on the ball club, you'd expect to hit a home run, just hit one into the screen, Bucky Dent. Hi there everyone, I'm Bucky Dent. Welcome to this week's episode of Deep to Left with Bucky Dent. Along with me is Al Santaseri, the editor-in-chief of Yankee Magazine, Hi, everyone. And John Schwartz, Yankees Magazine Deputy Editor. And we got a guy that I've been wanting to talk to for a long time because he started at my baseball school back in, I think he said, like 1985. And uh, John Flaherty, what a class guy. He's gone on to have just a tremendous career, not only as a baseball player, but a broadcast. And I'm looking forward to talk to him. For sure, guys. You know, it's been an interesting couple of weeks. I, I know looking back on... A couple weeks ago, our Ron Guidry episode, and then we had our Mike Torres episode, now John Flaherty. I'm really just loving these conversations, and I'm really excited to hear what John Flaherty has to bring to the table. I feel the same way. You know, I probably repeat this too often, but uh, (laughs) I have to say it about John Flaherty as well. Written a lot of uh, long profiles on Yankees players and former players. Flaherty is one of my favorites. I probably said that about Gator as well, but, you know, John's a, a real you know, great story about somebody who persevered and, uh, and made it. And, uh, and, he, and he is one of the more classy people in the game uh, when he played as well as now from the broadcast booth. For sure. Well, Bucky, what do you say? Should we just get it started? Let's get going. Let's talk to John. Let's get him on the line. And I want to hear some great stories. John Flaherty, man, I'll tell you what, I'm so glad to have you on. Uh, it, it's been a uh, a long time since the Bucky Dent Baseball School when I saw you at 16 years old, and now you're a, a guy that's talking baseball on, on TV, man. But it's glad to have you on, and uh, let's talk some baseball. Yeah, you're bringing back some great memories, Bucky. That was uh, 1985, and my high school team, uh, St. Joseph's Regional High School in Montvale, New Jersey, we took a trip to your uh, your baseball camp and had a great week down there. 
you know, probably wasn't a big deal to you. I mean, you handed out like camper of the week, you know, every time these schools came down, but I was able to win camper of the week. And I thought I was a big deal, you know, against all those kids down there. So uh, it was, uh, it was, you know, and, and also meeting you, you know, a major league player and being able to, you know, actually sit there and have a conversation was a big thrill for all of us. And getting to know Gary Tuck, who, you know, who knew that he would have been my catching instructor years later. Uh, uh, it was a great, it was a great time for me. And, and it definitely built, built up my confidence. I bet you got some great stories because you you came actually in '85, so we didn't build a little Fidway until actually '88, '89. So you missed that. Yeah, I missed that whole thing. Um, you know, I was I was lucky enough, and and you guys gave me an opportunity to come back as kind of like an instructor years later. So I got to see the whole setup. But in '85, I, I I wasn't able to the, the field wasn't there. But uh, you know, so many great memories of your camp, and uh, you know, just giving giving kids an opportunity to show off their skills. We had a we had a lot of kids come through, and I tell you what, uh, I was telling Al and John, you know, that uh, over the years, man, of coaching and being in baseball, there wasn't a day that almost didn't go by that somebody that walk up to me and say, Hey, I went to your baseball school and, you know, we had a great time. And I would always ask him, did I yell at you? <laughs> <laughs> you know, that, that's so, that must be so cool for you though, Bucky, because, you know, for us coming down there, you know, getting out of the cold weather in New York, New Jersey and getting to Florida. And like I said, meeting you and all the instructors, it was a great week. But how cool is it for you to, to think about how many baseball lives you've influenced? That's pretty amazing. Yeah, it's it, it's a lot of fun. You know, I mean, I, I you know, Jared Saltamachia, he was a camper. I had him since he was 10 years old. I mean, uh, Alex Afani came. Uh, there were so many guys that came through that went on and it, and it was always nice to see them go on and and, uh, and, and make it to the big leagues and, and fulfill their dream. That's what it was all about. That's one of the reasons I, I started the baseball school. And actually, you went on and you had a tremendous career. You know, I mean, I turned you into New York. They didn't draft you. You got hurt in your senior year before you went to George Washington? Um, no, my senior year, I was healthy, but, you know, really didn't get a whole lot of exposure, uh, you know, with professional baseball scouts. So it was kind of a long shot if I would get drafted out of high school. And to tell you the truth, uh, looking back at it, it was the, the best thing ever. I wasn't ready physically or mentally to go away and play, but I did get hurt my uh, junior year of college. And my draft status was affected because of that. So there might have been something there with the Yankees. They they actually had me for a, a workout at Prince William uh, before the draft with one of their minor league clubs. But uh, nothing ever ever came of it. I had to go to the rival, the Red Sox, Bucky, for a few years. I know, I know. And you're one of the uh, guys. Uh, we had Mike Torres on uh, a couple of weeks ago, but you're you're one of the guys that experienced both sides. You know, playing in Boston and being able to play in New York. Talk a little bit about, you know, the difference in playing in Boston and, and coming to New York. Well, you know, I made it to the big leagues in 92 and, and played uh, behind Tony Pena who was a starting catcher. So 92, 93 were my time, my years in Boston. And to be honest with you, you know, the Red Sox were not very good. The Yankees were not very good. So the rivalry, there wasn't much to it then. So I didn't appreciate the rivalry until I became a Yankee in 2003. And at that point, both teams were really good. So that rivalry was pretty intense. I don't know if it was as intense as when you were playing, but, you know, the, the 70s and stuff. But, uh, you know, the, the mid-2000s were, uh, was, were pretty fun. But, you know, they're, they're, different, they're different fan bases. You know, the fan base in Boston uh, was craving a championship that they finally had. So there was a, there was a little anger up there. 
the Yankee fans, uh, greatest fans in, in the game, in my opinion, had, had so much more confidence because of all the winning. But it was, it was a fun market to break into as a rookie. And New York, obviously, was a great place to end my career. I spent three amazing years as a backup to Jorge Posada. We, we all know Bucky's story and things like that. But let's not forget 2003, you have Pedro Martinez and Don Zimmer fighting on the field. Those years were pretty intense. Yeah, it was, it was amazing. And I tell people, uh, you know, when the Yankees and the Red Sox are good, it's not only good for both of those cities and organizations. It's great for baseball because it's so intense. But, you know, you think about some of the names that were on that Red Sox team. You know, you had uh, Kurt Schilling and Pedro Martinez and Kevin Millar and you know, as Yankees, we, we hated these guys. I mean, because of their, they were outspoken and Pedro was drilling Jeter and Soriano and all these guys. So uh, there were two really good teams, but I think there was a lot of dislike between the personalities on both clubs. So it made that rivalry uh, for, for a couple of years pretty intense. You know, John, for, before we, uh, we talk about too much about your Yankees days, you know, when I did the, the Yankees magazine story with you, one of my favorite anecdotes, or maybe my favorite anecdote that, that you shared was your Major League debut. Obviously, I've, uh, you know, lived in, as I've said, lived in Rockland County for quite a while now. But the drive that you made that morning as a Red Sox prospect who had just gotten called up to Yankee Stadium, I think is, is just such a special story. And, and I was just sharing it with Bucky before we got on. Can you give us that whole story? Yeah, of course. Uh, thanks for bringing that memory up, Al. It was, uh, <laughs> it, was, uh, it was a foggy morning that morning for a lot of different reasons. But, you know, I was the last player cut in 1992 in spring training. So, uh, I actually had an 84 Chevy Cavalier mini wagon that was the only car I could afford at that point. And it had the wood paneling down the side. And I drove that thing from Winter Haven, Florida, back to Rockland County, New York, to watch my younger brother play in a, in a high school baseball game on a Monday afternoon. And I went out that night with a few of my buddies and, uh, you know, obviously had probably too many sodas because I, I overslept <laughs> the next morning. And I got a phone call from Lou Gorman, who was the GM of the Red Sox at 1030 in the morning. And he's like, you know, how far do you live from Yankee Stadium? And I said, yeah, about 35 minutes. And he said, you need to get in the car and get to Yankee Stadium because you, we're going to activate you. John Marzano hurt his arm, and you're going to be the backup catcher. Opening day, 92, Yankees, Red Sox in Yankee Stadium in the stadium that I grew up going to uh, watching games as a kid. So, uh, you know, had a, had a nice moment with my dad, and, and I loaded up that, that Chevy Cavalier minivagon, and I headed to Yankee Stadium. And, you know, opening day, it's packed. So I'm sitting on the Major Deegan, bumper-to-bumper -bumper traffic, and I can see the stadium off to my left. But, you know, traffic is not moving. And at this point, it's probably about 12.30. And I got out of my car, and I went up to one of the police officers and, you know, explained the situation. And I'll never forget the look on his face. He looked at my 84 Chevy Cavalier minivagon. He said, <laughs> there's no way this guy just got called up to the big league. So I had to go into the car, take out my catching bag, show him that I was part of the organization and he stopped traffic the wrong way on a one-way coming out of the player parking lot and I made my way down there made a left into the players parking lot at about 20 to 1 signed a contract and they were actually ironing my name on the back of the jersey that's how last minute this whole thing was and before I knew it they said listen get out there they're introducing the lineups or the teams and the next thing I know, I'm standing on third base, on the third baseline. Bob Shepard introduces me, John Flaherty, number 15. And that's how my major league career started. I, it was, I was hungover. It was a blur. And I'm standing on the third baseline looking up at the crowd like I can't believe that this, this just happened. So 
uh, to do it at home at Yankee Stadium was a big thrill for me and my family. That's such a great story. You know, I, I've shared with you, I've been to every opening day, first as a fan and, and then as an employee since 1992. That was the first opening day I've ever been at, and I've been at every one since. So it's it's a, a special story. Never heard anybody, you know, having a hangover from soda. So I, I just I can't get over that. It's amazing. Yeah. You're the first. <laughs> uh, I bet that was a thrill, just like going to the to the Buckingham Baseball School, right? <laughs> same, same type of thrill, Bucky. Same, same feeling. <laughs> I tell you, man, I, I remember my first game in Milwaukee. I got there late, too. I got there in the third inning, and I remember walking down that, that long tunnel in that old Milwaukee Stadium yeah. and walking out in the dugout. 35,000 pe- people, man, and I tell you what, I, I, I was so nervous I couldn't even see straight, and uh uh, I was going to ask you what what your feelings were just standing there, but you were a little hungover from that coke. So now I understand. <laughs> but Yankee Stadium, I'm to play. I mean, to be called up to your first game, you know, especially being a New York boy, that had to be some kind of a thrill. Yeah, I remember it was about the seventh inning, and I was in the visitors bullpen, and you know, at the old stadium, uh, you get a great view of the game, obviously, but but the stadium and the crowd, and I I remember just sitting there, it finally hit me. Like after seven innings that I, I am actually a major league player and nobody can take it away from me. But then quickly you realize, right, Bucky, that, okay, I got to get in a game. I got to get the jitters out of the way. And I got to prove to myself and everybody else that I belong here. Because, you know, as a 24-year-old kid, you, you question yourself. And you mentioned how nervous you were in Milwaukee. I, my first game was in Cleveland. Uh, against the Indians and I remember I was so nervous I could hardly throw the ball back to the pitcher and I was known for my throwing arm as a defensive catcher coming up through the system so it was uh it was a long road to get there but quickly you realize I got to find a way to stay here so uh it became a grind pretty quickly yeah I'm, I'm sure it did but you know you 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 did some tremendous things I mean I was just checking the notes man and uh a uh, 20 game 27 game hitting streak going from standing on third base and playing your first game in Cleveland to 27 game hitting streak that's that's quite an accomplishment yeah i i actually shake my head when you bring it up bucky because uh it was such a long road for me offensively to learn how to hit you know i came up to the big leagues as a defensive guy who could catch throw and didn't didn't really have any power didn't know what i was doing at the plate and to tell you the truth, I got sent down from Detroit. I, I got traded to Detroit from Boston, and I got sent down when the strike in 94 happened. And Sparky Anderson said, listen, we want you to go down to AAA. You could play a couple of more weeks. And when I went down there, my manager was Larry Parrish. And Larry saw me swing the bat in one game. I'll never forget it. I went two for four. And after the game, he said, John, you're never going to be more than a backup catcher with that swing. And he said, I want to completely change you over these next two weeks. And obviously, I fought it a little bit. Um, and the, the GM of the Tigers, the big league club, Joe Klein, comes down the next day to Toledo. And he said, let's give Larry a chance here. And I won't hold it against you if it doesn't go well. So I completely redid my whole swing. And Larry just wanted me to hit the ball out front a little bit more, get off my backside, and try to hit home runs, try to drive the ball, because that's what the Tigers were all about. And to tell you the truth, Bucky, it changed everything for me. I mean, those two weeks, I had seven home runs. In, uh, in two weeks of AAA games, and the Tigers named me the starting catcher for the next year right after that. So Larry Paris changed my career offensively, and when I got traded to San Diego and the hitting streak that you mentioned, I went 0 for 10 my first 10 at-bats, and Merv Rettman was the hitting instructor, and he said, listen, I just think you need to move your hands. Get a little movement in your hands while you're getting ready to hit. 
And it just slowed everything down for me. And I went on this run that was really one of those things that I didn't even want to pay attention to because I knew I wasn't that good of a hitter. And, you know, the, the late, great Tony Gwynn was on that team. And when I passed 25 to 26 games, he came up to me and he said, well, you just blew me out of the water. Now, when you hear that from Tony <laughs> Gwynn, right, his longest was 25 games. And he says that to me. And I'm like, all right, I'm in way over my head now. This, you know, I'm not supposed to be doing this. A few days later, I went over against Al Leiter and ended that streak. But there was a long road from that kid who got called up in 92 who didn't have a clue to hit to make some adjustments, make some changes, gain some confidence, and then all of a sudden that hitting streak happened. So it was a fun ride, a fun year and a half in, in San Diego. Like you said, you came up, you were known as a defensive catcher, and uh, Joe Torre, I guess, just loved you and Joe Girardi because both of you guys were just like students of the game. You know, you, you, you worked the pitchers really well. Talk a little bit about catching some of those great pitchers. You know, like you had a really good rapport with Randy Johnson, but... Um, you know, you, you, you really studied the game a lot like Joe Girardi. Yeah. You know what the, uh, the three Yankee years were, were great years for me because I was kind of coming to the end of my career and I knew I was a better player as a backup than I would be as an everyday player because physically I just couldn't, couldn't go back behind the plate and do it six, six days a week. So I don't know, I don't know if you know this, but I actually turned down the backup job to Jorge Posada when I first became a free agent. Uh, in the winter of, of 02 into 03, um, because the Texas Rangers were offering me a full-time job. So I turned down Brian Cashman. And I, I remember telling my agent, I can't believe I'm going to do this because this is a perfect job for me. But I still had an opportunity to play every day. And then sure enough, as negotiations go, the Texas Rangers decided to go in a different direction. And here I am without a job. And my agent called up Brian Cashman and said, Listen, can John come back? And Brian said, we already guaranteed Chris Widger his contract. So we'll bring John in as a non-roster, but he's got to try to make the team. So I went in that spring, didn't have a guaranteed job. And, uh, you know, you mentioned Joe Torrey. Uh, the last day of spring training, I get called in the office. And he says, we just released Chris Widger and gave him guaranteed money because you can help our pitching staff. And that's what they wanted as a backup catcher was to work with the pitchers. And they, they took a chance on me and it worked out for three years. And, you know, to tell you the truth, coming from Tampa Bay, where I spent five years, we were losing almost 100 games every year. And then you come to the Yankees and you're catching guys like Clemens and Pettit and David Wells. A dream come true for me as a, as a catcher behind the plate, being able to work with these guys. I learned a lot. Uh, I feel like maybe I, I helped some of them along the way. And I think the most important thing is I knew what my role was. You know, you play once a week, you give Jorge a day off. Hopefully he gets a full day off and we win the game. That was my job. And uh, I love my three years as a Yankee. So here's my question for you. Some of my favorite clubhouse conversations in covering the Yankees have been with Austin Romine, who, you know, is no longer with the team, but he was just, I learned so much from him over the years. And I, and, and I, not only did I learn a lot about Austin and a lot about baseball and a lot about pitching and catching, I really learned a lot about Gary Sanchez from Austin Romine. So my question to you, we all know that Austin is a great guy, but he has a chip on his shoulder in some ways, and, and, and he's so funny, and he's, he's nice, and he's interesting. There is no question that he believed that he was good enough to be a starting catcher. And, yet, and he also understood that his role was to be Gary Sanchez's backup. How did you juggle those 
two thoughts. Because if you're going to play in the big leagues, if you're going to stand in there in a batter's box, if you're going to put down a couple fingers, you know, for for one of those pitchers you're talking about, you have to believe that you're one of the best people in the world at doing this. But how do you reconcile sometimes that idea that the best thing you can do is be the guy who's going to play once a week? Well, you know, you mentioned Austin. He's one of my favorites uh, of all time that I've ever covered and, and gotten to know. And, you know, I, I always thought that it's so much harder for a backup player to be a young player because, to your point, you believe you can be a starter and you're waiting for your opportunity and, and not that you're wishing bad on the guy that you're backing up, but you want to get your shot. So I always felt bad for Austin because at the point in his career where he was a younger player, it's not an easy role to accept. Uh, my three years backing up Jorge, I was 36, 7, and 8. So I was at the end of the road, and it was so much easier to be a backup at the end of my career than it was my rookie year because, you know, you, you know that you're, physically you can't do it every day. So my biggest concern, and when I made the team, I had a conversation with Jorge, and I was very honest with him. I said, listen, I don't want your job. I said, I understand how good you are, and I understand how much better we are when you're out there on the field. So my job is just to give you a day off whenever you need one and try to try to win some ball games when you're sitting on the bench. So our, our relationship was so great because he did not feel threatened at all by me. I, I was perfectly happy being a backup player on, on hopefully a championship club. So in a long way, I'm answering your question. It's a lot easier when you're an older player and you're trying to win a ring than it is when you're a younger player like Austin Romine. And I, I was happy to see Austin get an opportunity with Detroit uh, if we can get back to playing some baseball and see what he can do as an everyday player. Well, let me just push back there one tiny bit, though, because in the in that once a week when you are playing, the mentality you're taking out into the field isn't that this is Jorge's job and I'm filling in for him once a week. That day, at least, you have to believe that you're one of the best eight players on the, on the field, right? Yeah, well, the way I, I looked at it my last couple of years is the day that I played all my job was about was to work with that pitching staff and win the game. And it's amazing when you don't put any expectations on yourself offensively because it's such a hard job when you're not getting at-bats consistently. I, I took all the expectations off of myself at the plate. And I said, all right, work with the starting pitcher, whoever that is. Let's try to work with the bullpen, try to get a win. And anything that I did at the plate would have been a bonus. And I actually swung the bat pretty well the first two years as a, as a backup player because I didn't put any pressure on myself to get hits. I was like, you know what, if we win the game and my guy throws well, that's, that's a good day for me. And, and it worked out for a couple of years. Talk about some of those guys on that staff. I mean, you know, the trust factor, you know, as far as a, a pitcher and a catcher. Uh, I've always been, uh, you know, kind of curious about that. I know where pitch, certain pitchers love to throw to certain guys and, and – uh, they just they just seem to hit it off really, really well. And uh, Randy Johnson seemed to have that with you. Yeah, that that was uh, that was an interesting relationship, Bucky. But, uh, you know, I, I when you're bringing that up about working with some of these guys, there are three pitchers that stood out to me that um, were so different. And one was David Wells would throw any pitch that you put down. He would never shake you off. He could throw three pitches for strikes at any time. So he was a pleasure to, to deal with as a catcher because you were in control. Then there was a guy like Mike Mussina who was completely his own pitcher, would call his own game. And you almost – I took it as a challenge to try to get in his head and figure out what he was trying to do. So the mental challenge of catching Moose was, uh, was tremendous. And then there's a guy like Clemens 
who would actually tell you what pitch he wanted to throw before you put down a sign by, by you know, like wiggling his glove or, or uh, pulling at his belt. He, had, he, he really wanted the rhythm of a pitcher and catcher to be on time. So he would give you clues about what he wanted to throw. But, you know, the Randy Johnson thing in 05 really came about because Jorge Posada and Randy, it just wasn't working. And Joe Torre came up to me in uh, St. Louis. We were doing interleague play. And he said, listen, I, I'm thinking about making a change. And he said, can you yell and scream at Randy Johnson for seven or eight innings as long as he's in there? And I said, you know what? It'll be my pleasure. So that's exactly what I wow. did. I, I, took it as, <laughs> I took it as, you know what? I'm going to make this guy feel like my day revolves around him. And everything he does from throwing a side session to pitching in a game, I'm going to be there for him, but I'm also going to be on, I'm going to be on him. So we got in a lot of screaming matches out on the mound. I remember one at Yankee Stadium. I remember one in Seattle where, you know, poor Mel Stoudemire had to come out and break the whole thing up. And he's actually hysterically laughing on the mound. But that was our relationship. And that's what worked for Randy uh, is if I just had to yell and scream at him and fire balls back at him, it worked. Uh, he went 11-1 and the second half. And, you know, that was one of the things I enjoyed about being behind the plate. You almost had to change your personality every day, depending on who you were catching. And you guys know me. I'm not a yeller. I'm not a screamer. I'm a, I'm a very laid back guy. But for once every five days when I caught Randy, I, I, I got it up to another level intense, intensity wise because that's what made him better. So you had to be a psychologist along with being a catcher too, right? Yeah. <laughs> well, let me tell you a story about Randy Johnson. When I'm managing in Fort Lauderdale, uh, my first year, he he's pitching against us. He's with the Expos in West Palm Beach, and they had a really good team. And so one of the scouts told me, he said, Bucky, this guy can throw it 100 miles an hour, or he can throw it like 85 miles an hour. Depends on what's happening in the game. He says, try and tick him off a little bit. Do something to, to make him mad, because then he starts over, overthrowing and throwing the ball all over the place. So... The first game, I tried to do something to stir him up, and it ticked him off. Instead of throwing 84, he started throwing like 105, <laughs> and Jay, Bu Jay Buner and those guys came back and go, hey, listen, don't be doing that anymore. Yeah. <laughs> you know? yeah. And I said, okay, guys. I said, whoever told me to do that, I'm not doing that anymore, because he got mad, and he started throwing harder, and we had no chance. And I said, okay, I'm not going to do that again. Yeah, you, you learned that with the young Randy Johnson. I learned it with the old, older Randy Johnson. But yeah, if he, if he had a fire and he was angry, he threw the ball great. It's so funny, Bucky, how everybody was so different. And when, when I came to the Yankees and I got in that clubhouse for the first time and you start seeing what makes some of these guys tick. And, you know, somebody like Andy Pettit, who on game day was just as intense as you could be. You didn't bother him at all before the game. And then when he went into pitch, he was so hard on himself that it, it was almost funny to the point where, you know, he, he would beat himself up about every pitch. And he was so intense and he was so into it. And that's what made him great. And then you had somebody else like David Wells, who's cranking up the hard rock music in the clubhouse, doesn't have a care in the world before the game. And it worked for him. Um, you know, they're just so different. And like I said, it was one of the things that I really enjoyed is how you had to kind of change your personality behind the plate in order to get the most out of your pitcher. And, um, you know, I think if, if guys behind the plate had the right attitude that their job is to work with the pitching staff first, uh, I think you can take a team to another level.
So, so coming up through the minors, I mean, uh, who are some of the guys that, you know, that really, you know, helped you with the game as far as the, the mental side of the game and understanding pitchers like you were dealing with? I mean, was there any one catching instructor or any one pitching coach that, you know, really helped you with the philosophy of, of, of how to handle a pitching staff? Not, not really coming up through the minor leagues. And, you know, Bucky, you remember the, the old days. I mean, it was throw the baseballs and the bats out there and let, let the guys play. And the Red Sox philosophy back then was, you know, you had a manager and a pitching coach, and that was pretty much it. And, you know, right. and all of a sudden, you know, you're, after a season, you're going to see who can play and who can't. So I think one of my greatest advantages coming up through the minor leagues was growing up on the East Coast, playing against all these kids from all over the country, California, Texas, Florida. And they were so talented, but I, I found out early on that there was a, a mental toughness that you needed to have, you know, in the minor leagues and also getting to the major leagues and staying there. And I think growing up on the East Coast, I don't know what it is. Maybe it's because of weather. We don't get to play that much baseball. But uh, I found out pretty early on that I was, a little, I was a little more mentally tough than some of the other guys and was able to make my way up through the system. But catching wasn't taught in the minor leagues with the Red Sox. It was go out and do your thing. And to tell you the truth, you know, I got a lot of my catching instructor from our good friend Gary Tuck, who I first met at the Bucky Dent Baseball School. And, you know, Gary and I stayed in touch. Uh, whenever I had any problems, I was able to go to him and see if he could fix it. And I got to work with him on a day-in and day-out basis with the Yankees. And to tell you the truth, it was, it was a great pleasure because I got to work on my defensive game every day. And Gary held you accountable. If you didn't block a ball during the game, he was going to let you know about it. And, and it, it took me to another level behind the plate when I was able to work with him day in and day out. John, you talked about, uh, you know, if we get back to playing baseball this year, you know, and all this talk about catching and the catching position, Gary Sanchez's catching career, uh, you know, has, has certainly garnered criticism as well as, you know, a lot of respect, depending on who you talk to and, and so on and so forth. As a catcher who covers the team very regularly now, what are your thoughts on what he's been able to do and, and the way that he's, you know, if, if you agree with this, is the way that he's been able to improve behind the plate and what the future holds for him as a, as a catcher? Look into your crystal ball here for a second. You guys probably know this. I've been as critical of Gary behind the plate as anybody because, you know, that's what I did for a living. And, you know, I feel like there are certain parts of the position and the job that are really important. But as we're now in this new age of baseball, I find that I have to change my my thinking about what a catcher is supposed to do behind the plate. And by that, I mean, you know, I've said on this, you know, to you guys before, my job was work with a pitcher first, right? That was my first priority. I felt like blocking a baseball in the dirt and holding runners where they were, keeping a double play in order was such a priority for me. And then finally, you know, pitch framing and, and throwing runners out was probably third and fourth on that list. Well, in today's game, the pitch framing and the metrics is the number one thing for guys behind the plate. So I almost have to change my philosophy or my thinking what I think old school was really important, blocking balls in the dirt was a major priority. The new age catcher and catching instructors don't put that much value on it. So with all of that being said, Gary has gotten better. The pass balls have been an issue in the past. He's gotten better. I was really looking forward to seeing him this year with Tanner Swanson, the new catching guy, to see what type of improvements he's going to make. But when you talk about physical ability behind the plate, throwing arm, you know, the, the body being able to catch every day, 
You know, Gary's been hurt a little bit, but he has all of the tools that you want from an all-star catcher behind the plate. Uh, we're just kind of waiting for it, for it all to come together. Some of those young players coming up are more hitting oriented than they are really catching oriented. Don't you don't you agree with that? Totally. I, yeah. They come up now and they put more emphasis on swinging the bat than they do doing the, all the little things that you said uh, were important as far as catching. I, I totally agree, Bucky. And, you know, that's one of the things that um, I will always take away from my three years with Jorge Posada. We all know what a great player he was. But when Jorge went out there to play, he put up great offensive years, but his priority was on, on his pitchers. And I respected him so much when I played against him I didn't get that feeling, and then I played with him for three years. I was so impressed how his staff was his number one priority, and then when he went up to the plate, he just let it rip and drove in runs and hit home runs and was a great switch hitter with power. So that's the perfect combination. But to your point, Bucky, I think kids come up to the big leagues now. It's let's swing the bat first, and if I can frame some pitches behind the plate, then I'm going to stick around for a while. And I just think there's so much more to it if you can find that special player who really cares about his pitching staff and has the offensive ability like a Gary Sanchez does. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of rare, you know. I mean, uh, I played with Thurman Munson, who was a pretty doggone good hitter and a pretty doggone good catcher. And then I saw Pudge Rodriguez in Texas for seven years when I was coaching over there, and he was just phenomenal. And every now and then he would let us hit and get to him, you know, but I'm telling you far, as far as throwing and, and doing everything, I mean, he was one of the best that I saw. Yeah, he was the best I've ever seen. And I, I was lucky enough to compete against Pudge for a few years. And, you know, I had never seen anybody. First of all, the arm strength was off the charts. I don't have to tell you that, but the footwork behind the plate and how quick his feet were, were equally as impressive. And you know, to tell you the truth, I had a couple of years in Tampa Bay where I, I you know, I threw out 40 something percent, you know, and felt like I was really at the top of my game behind the plate. And one of the greatest compliments I ever got was from uh, some of the coaches with the Texas Rangers who said, you know what, we voted for you for a gold glove because they couldn't vote for Pudge. And to me, that was an incredible compliment because he he was just so much better than everybody else in the game behind the plate. You're right, because I was over in Texas giant with uh, Jerry Naron and, and uh, Johnny Oates, who were both catchers, and I remember them. I remember them talking about that. You know what a what a great defensive catcher you were, and you proved it. You know, th throwing out guys all over the place. I mean, but uh, yeah, as far as Pudge, I mean, uh, I was in the game a long time, and you know, I saw Johnny Bench. But I've never seen anybody watching day in and day out, watching a guy like Pudge Rodriguez pick guys off first base, pick guys off second base. I mean, they were they actually got scared to get off the base over at first. I mean, because he was just lightning quick. Hey, you know, I remember we had pregame meetings, pre-series meetings when we would play against you guys with the Rangers. You know, obviously it was, listen, this guy likes to throw behind runners at first and at second, shorten up your leads. But, Bucky, until you actually see it, until you actually experience it, it, you don't believe it. I mean, it's just so quick, and the arm strength is there. And to do it in the heat in Texas, I mean, I would go in there and catch three games. I would lose 10 pounds, and I would be, you know, feel exhausted for a week after that. He did it day in and day out, and he did it as well as anybody I've ever seen. You came up, you know, not long after after I finished playing, but, I mean, the – the load management, and we're worried about, you know, this and that. I mean, we, we never worried about that. They just wrote your name in the lineup. And and I remember 
telling the story. Uh, when I played in Chicago, I never, ever asked for a day off. One of the guys told me, he said, don't ever ask Chuck Tanner for a day off because you may not get back in there. And so I never asked for a day off because I was scared. You know, you're just scared to, to ask for a day off. I know exactly how you're feeling. I never asked for a day off. I was scared to death to, to mention an injury or, you know, that you were hurt or you were banged up a little bit because if you went on the disabled list, I felt like I was going to lose my job. So today's game, you know, as a broadcaster sometimes frustrates me because, you know, I'll see a Gary Sanchez go out there and get three or four hits, play the next night, get two hits, and then he's not playing the next night. And, you know, it just baffles me because, you know, Bucky, as players, we, we get rolling. We want to be in there every day. You know, you might welcome a day off when you're scuffling a little bit, but that's the, that's the one part of the game that frustrates me now is let's let a guy swing the bat, stay hot for a week or two, and we'll worry about load management and giving him days off when maybe he's scuffling. But it doesn't seem like uh, that's a priority now. They're trying to get guys through a season, and because of that, they're not playing as much. I have a hunch that, Bucky, you would have liked managing or coaching John Flaherty during your long career in the majors and the, and the minor leagues. What do you think? Absolutely. You know, I mean, I, I, you know, I love guys that, you know, love to play the game and, you know, that wanted to play the game and, and, and had some knowledge of the game, you know, because you always learn. Anytime you, you go out there, you're always learning something. And I was just get, always get fascinated at the catching part of it. Uh, I used to talk to Gary Tuck all the time because he worked for me at my school for years and uh, talked to him about, you know, setup, you know, about this, about that, about the mentality of catching. But no, I would I would have loved to uh, to play with John and, and, and managed him because, you know, he's just a smart guy. And look, it's obvious he, he made a great transition from player into the booth. And, and I was going to ask you about being an announcer now, you know, the frustration that you see. In, in some of the, some of the game now it's just you know I think we have to realize that it's just a different game now and and with all of the analytics and all of the numbers and the metrics uh, there's a lot of information that that is out there that as a broadcaster we're not privy to so some of the decisions that are made down in the dugout out on the field by an organization sometimes makes you scratch your head but there's all a rhyme and reason to it and you know greatest part for me about you know the broadcasting is being around the game every day being around the players uh, you know, it's what I love. I love talking about it. Uh, you know, it's been a, a great, you know, couple of years with the Yes Network. And like I said, hopefully we get back to the game this year and get to do what we love to do. John, you mentioned some of the things that you find, you know, frustrating at times about watching the game from your own perspective. What are some of the things that like now that you have your, you know, 30,000 foot view of the game every day and you're, and you're seeing the whole field instead of just the part that you're working on? What are some of the things that you've come to actually appreciate more about today's game by being so, you know, keyed into all the moves that are happening? Well, I think, first of all, the players are, are so much more talented than, than my era. And, you know, because of that, or I think the reason for that is, you know, the training year round, you know, the, the, the nutrition, you know, the, the, the meals that these guys get made for them. I mean, we were eating fast food and, you know, drinking a few beers after game when I came up. So it, it, the players, that's what jumps out at me right away, how talented these guys are. Um, the, the part that I get a little frustrated with, uh, you know, Bucky as an infielder, you'd probably appreciate this, you know, the, the shifts that are put on, I understand why they're put on, but you see infielders looking into the dugout on where they should be playing. And, you know, for me, I think sometimes the feel of the game 
is lost. You know, watching swings, seeing what a pitcher's trying to do to a hitter and being able to position yourself accordingly. You know, that's the thing behind the plate that I, I would call a game with all of the information that I had, but I would call it from my gut on what I saw from a pitcher that day. That makes a lot of sense. And that, and that's so important. You know, we had Mike Torres on uh, last week talking of, you know, talking about pitching and, and he pitched seven complete games in a row in 1977. Wow. I mean, (laughs) you know, it just, when I saw that, I forgot about it to tell you the truth until I was reading the notes. And then I saw where he had pitched seven complete games in a row. That was amazing to me. I mean, you, you don't see hardly a guy pitch a complete game in a month, do you? No, it's, it's unheard of now. And, you know, one of the things during this pandemic and we haven't had live baseball is that, you know, it's on TV. Sometimes you get to see some of the older games and, and what really jumped out at me is watching pitchers work as quick as they did, and they threw the ball over the plate. It was almost like they were challenging hitters to say, here's my best stuff. Let's see what you can do with it. And I think because of that, a guy like Mike Torres can throw seven complete games because he keeps his pitch count down. You know, and, and in today's game, there's a lot of nibbling. There's a lot of full counts. There's a lot of trying to trick people. Um, and I think if some of the pitchers kind of watch some of those old-time old-time games and that the attitude of a pitcher just challenged people i love that i love watching the old games yeah they pitch the contact they pitch the contact they yes, try to make exactly. make you hit the ball i mean i play with with jim cott in chicago and i think the longest inning he had was like six minutes <laughs> i mean he yeah. just uh, they they changed his delivery and he just got the ball and just went right after you and he threw strikes and i tell you what it, it keeps the game moving and it keeps infielders on their toes when you see that you you want the game to move along you know, sometimes I'll watch the first couple innings of an old game and realize it's just a little hard to watch because I've seen it and I know how it's going to end. But a couple of weeks ago, I happened to turn on the TV and, and game seven of the 2003 American League Championship Series was on. And of course, that's the, you know, now labeled the Aaron Boone game. And uh, I turned it on. It was like the sixth inning or something like that. And You know, as exciting as it was when Aaron Boone hit the home run to win the game. I have always said the most exciting part of that game is when you guys came back, uh, you know, down by three runs with five outs left. And, and of course being in the eighth inning and, you know, got back to back to back hits off of Pedro and, and, you know, Jorge Posada's hit obviously tied the game from your perspective that night, John, can you kind of take me through that game and how exciting that, eighth inning was and and how you know how you how you felt before that inning and how much you know kind of hopelessness you may have felt before that kind of just the you know the the emotions you had that night yeah well there were there were a lot of different ones I mean you know my my regular routine whether it was game seven of an ALCS or you know the first game of the season was I would watch the first five innings from the dugout and try to get a feel for what the opposing hitters were trying to do and then I would go to the bullpen with Mariana Rivera in the bottom of the fifth, and we would head out to the bullpen, and I would spend the second half of the game out there. So, you know, when you're sitting in the dugout and you're down early to Pedro Martinez, who was dealing at the time, uh, obviously the, you, you weren't feeling really confident. But the one thing that that club had, did a really good job against Pedro especially uh, is we would kind of just hang in there with them, and we would kind of grind and just make them work and, you know, hope to get into their bullpen. So, uh, not that we had a lot of confidence that we were going to beat Pedro, but that we, we had confidence that we were going to find a way to win a game that he started by getting him out of the game and getting into the bullpen. So 
uh, as bad as it looked early on, it was just like that constant mentality uh, that Joe Torrey preached, you know, just keep grinding it out to the last out. So when you mentioned there were five outs left and we were down and we kind of found a way to, to get back in it, that's what that team did all year long. And, and to be able to watch it from the bullpen in that little window at the old Yankee Stadium, you know, and watch, you know, Derek hit a double and then Bernie gets a hit and then Matsui and then Jorge, obviously that big hit was huge. But, you know, when Jorge got that hit, you know, for me, you're instantly excited. The game's tied. This is great. But then the backup player starts coming out, and I'm like, is Joe Torre going to pinch run for him? So you start kind of, you know, it was already loose, but you start thinking, all right, I might be in this game. Let's get my game face on a little bit and try to get, get into it. And obviously that didn't happen. And, you know, you know, you catch guys in the bullpen, and you're wondering, does he have enough to get through a lineup? And I remember when Aaron Boone hit that home run, I was warming up Jose Contreras, who had absolutely nothing. I mean, he was running on, on fumes at that point. And I'm catching him, and Tim Wakefield's in the game, and Wake had given us so many problems. I'm thinking to myself, this is not, not going to end well because, you know, Wakefield can throw that knuckleball all night long. And then, obviously, with Aaron's swing, uh, things worked out great for us. So an exciting night for me getting to my only World Series, and I thank Aaron Boone for that a lot. And, and talk about your no-hitter. You broke up uh, – you got a base hit and broke up Pedro's – no hitter in the ninth inning. That had to be something else, man. Uh, Pedro, I tell you what, I saw him when he was young in 94 before the strike. And that, that kid was, I mean, he you could tell right away he was going to be something special. And he turned out to be pretty special. Yeah, there was a combination of power, location, great breaking ball, and also a mean streak. You know, when you stepped in the box against Pedro, you, you might get one in the back. You just never knew. So that added that added to how tough he was. But you bring up that night of breaking up the no-hitter, and I remember getting that hit and standing on first base, and it, it wasn't a feeling of like, oh, I just broke up a no-hitter, this is great. It was almost embarrassment because the storyline behind that game was it, there were bean brawls going on the whole night, right? I mean, we had an issue where we hit Nomar Garcia-Para, they hit Gerald Williams, and it just kept going back and forth. And then in the meantime, you're thinking about the fifth or sixth inning, this guy's throwing a no-hitter. You know, we're trying to hit Reds. You know, I remember after the game telling the media that was probably the most embarrassing I've ever, most embarrassed I've ever been to be part of a major league game because it, it was just uh, ugly with all the bean brawls. But it ended up we lost the game, but Pedro didn't get his no hitter. And to tell you the truth, he made me look bad on two off speed pitches. And then he tried to embarrass me and blow me away with a fastball. And I never came off the fastball. I looked for it every pitch in my whole big league career. So I, I kind of got a, a, a gift there on an 0-2 count, I think it was, and just uh, drove one to right field. Well, you, he tried to trick you, and he couldn't trick you, right? That's right. That's right. When you're looking for that fastball every pitch, Bucky, you can do something yeah. with it. Yeah, you can't, you can't sneak one of them by you. I know that. I've I, I seen you for a long time. So he tried to trick you, and he couldn't get it by you. But uh, what a great career, and, and, and thanks for coming on, John. Man, I tell you, uh, I just marveled at your career. You know, and Gary Tuck and I used to talk about it all the time. We thought maybe we had a little bit of something to do with it. But you, tremendous player for a long time, and uh, now you're a successful broadcaster. I love hearing you. I love your insight into the game and, and your honesty. And uh, I just want to thank you and for all the guys for, for coming on and being part of the Deep to Left with Bucky Dent. Well, I appreciate that, Bucky. It's been great being with all of you guys. But before I, before I get out of here, I – you and Gary Tuck were definitely had a lot to do with uh, my career and getting to where I got to. But what I wanted to thank you for, and I don't know if you guys know this, but 
you know, as a, as a young player who's able to play an old timers day, walking into that clubhouse with all of the old timers was one of the most nervous times I've, I'd ever spent. And it was amazing when you walk in there and you see guys like Bucky and Goose Gossage and Ron Guidry and all these players that I grew up watching and idolizing. And you guys made me feel so comfortable my first old timers day that I will never forget that feeling. And it's one of the highlights of the year when I'm able to just sit in that locker room and hear you guys talk and tell some of the stories. It's just a, a great time. And I want to thank you for making me feel like a, a welcome old timer in that clubhouse. I'll never forget that. Thank you. You're a Yankee and you're an old timer with us now, pal. <laughs> there we, we go. Love, we love to have you, man. We hope we got a lot more coming, uh, coming our way. But uh, it's always fun, like you say, to hear those guys tell stories. And Pinella's got some of the funniest oh, stories great. that I've ever heard. I don't, I don't know if you've been around him much, but he could tell some great stories. But you're an old timer now. You're down <laughs> there with us. And, and and let's go get them again this year. Sounds good to me. <laughs> Sounds good to me. Well, thanks a lot, buddy. You, thanks for coming on. You got it. Take care, guys. Be safe. What a what a great guy, man. I, I've, I've always wanted to talk to him, you know, especially, you know, having him come through the Bucky Dent Baseball School and go on to be, you know, so successful in his career. You know, he's just he just had a great career and now he's uh, doing a tremendous job on the Yes Network talking baseball. And uh, I've always wanted to spend some time and, and just chat with him about his career. Bucky, tell me a little bit about the school. You know, you've mentioned it. What what what, what was the program like? Uh, how big was it? Uh, what kind of details can you give me about that program? Well, my idea behind the baseball school was the first major league player I ever saw was a guy named Danny Fister. He used to play, play for the Kansas City Royals, and that's when I was in junior high. And as I got older and I made the, you know, the major leagues, I had worked for what became the Buckingham Baseball School, was a baseball school in, in Pompano. And it, it, it uh, graduated into where we, we moved it from Pompano to Boca to where we've wound up being in Delray for a number of years. But my idea was I always wanted to have a teaching school where kids could go and learn to play the game of baseball. And not only did we teach baseball, but we wanted to teach life skills, you know, to where, you know, we taught them how to play the game, how to be a professional, how to run off the field, how to wear your uniform, just, just a lot of different things. And I did it for 30 something years and I truly, truly enjoyed doing it. And uh, like I said, you know, we had a lot of great kids come through the school over the years that didn't maybe become baseball players, but they went on to be successful in, in a lot of different areas in their life. Well, I think I told you, Bucky, because you signed a photo for my cousin. Uh, he went to the Bucky Dent Baseball School uh, in the late 70s or early 80s. I mean, ha what happened to him? You let him slip through the cracks. Yeah, we did. <laughs> I guess not everybody worked out. No, we, we, you know, we have a lot of guys, you know, I mean, over the course of the year, you know, we do like 1200 kids. So, you know, so, sometimes we, you know, we call them knucklehead, you know, or, or something, you know, but that's the way we remember them, you know, uh, flathead, knucklehead, whatever, you know, we, no, we, we used to, we used to give them nicknames and, and that's the way we recognize them when they walk up, you know, and to the stands and they lean over and say, Hey, Bucky, you remember me? I go, Oh yeah, flathead. How you doing? <laughs> <laughs> and my only other observation that I wanted to mention to John is that if, you know, Tony Gwynn had been around or, 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 you know, had been a little younger and gone to the to the Bucky Dent hitting school, maybe he would have gotten a 27 game hitting oh. streak. But I guess his uh, his hitting, you know, just was a little bit limited. Yeah, he should have came. We could have helped him. <laughs> Isn't it just unbelievable to, to hear about a hitting streak like 27 and then to think about 56? <laughs> 
I know. 27 game hitting streak. That's that's incredible. And then you think about, oh my God, 56. I mean, I was just trying to get a hit a game, not much less 27 in a row, but uh, that tells you that tells you about this game, how hard it is, and, and when you do it, it's what a great accomplishment. With absolutely no disrespect to the great, great Joe DiMaggio, whose 56-game hitting streak will never be equaled. Obviously, John Flaherty didn't play and get the hitting streak in you know 2020 or 2019 or anything as recent as that. But you have to think about it. He got a 27-game hitting streak in an era where – a heck of a lot more relief pitchers came into games than they did in 1941. And again, with all due respect, I think Joe DiMaggio's record is the greatest record in sports. But Flaherty got a 27-game hitting streak in a time when they'd bring in a guy in the sixth inning to get John Flaherty out, or in the seventh, or in the eighth. And then in the ninth, there's a guy that's, you know, a great closer. Bucky, what do you think of, of kind of the added weight to having done this in a, in a little bit more of a modern era? Well, that's what I'm saying. I mean, it, 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 it's amazing to me because, you know, you're, you're facing maybe the starter and two or three relievers that are coming in the game. And, you know, a lot of times I know for myself where you go up there and I've had where I've been 0 for 40, where you hit balls right on the nose and you can't find a hole. And then to go 27 games in a row, I mean, you got to be locked in and you got to be right on and you got to have a lot of luck, too. <laughs> well, guys, I, th I think that's another great episode. I think uh, I do need to apologize, you know, not just to you, Bucky, and you, Alan, uh, John Flaherty, but also to all of our fans. I really should have brought up my deep, deep, deep family connections to the George Washington University, of which uh, Mr. Flaherty's an alum. You know, my my father-in-law went to law school there. His sister went to college there. My my sister-in-law went to college there. My brother, professor there. I think that's the kind of content wow. that people really wanted to hear us discuss. <laughs> so I, I think I blew it. But next time on, you know, Deep to Left with John Schwartz, we'll make sure to uh, get real deep into George Washington University. But for sure, guys, a, a, another great time. And really, just I, I love the storytelling. I love the things we're getting to hear. That's a uh, I, I, in my opinion, what makes this podcast so special. So I hope that if you're listening to this one, you'll make sure to go back and listen to the first eight or subscribe and listen to the rest of them. Of course, the Yankees Magazine Podcast Network. We also have, as you guessed, the Yankees Magazine Podcast. This most recent episode, we had MLB.com's Brian Hoke on to discuss the 2020 draft and the three picks the Yankees made. Look, we're, we're all hoping to get some baseball back soon when it happens. Make sure you're following us on Twitter at Yanks Magazine. We'll give you all the details and we'll let you know when the magazine's going to start publishing again and what you can look forward to. Of course, you can also go to yankees.com slash publications where we hope you'll subscribe or purchase some back issues and everything else. Look, we're, we're, we're hoping just as much as you all are to get some good baseball news soon. But in the meantime, Bucky, Al, let's just keep doing this because I'm really having so much fun with these episodes. So I hope you guys have a good couple weeks and we'll speak to you soon. Talk to you later, guys. Looking forward to it. Hi, this is Tommy Canely. For more stories like the ones you've been hearing about, subscribe to Yankees Magazine by visiting yankees.com slash publications or by calling 800-GO-YANKS. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. 
I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones, so we'll never lose touch with civilization, and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic? And conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai. There's joy in every journey.